Chapter 44 of The Gilded Age This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kenneth Sargent Gagan The Gilded Age by Mark Twain and Charles Dudley Werner Chapter 44 "'It's easy enough for another fellow to talk,' said Harry, despondingly, after he had put Philip in possession of his view of the case. "'It's easy enough to say, give her up, if you don't care for her. What am I going to do, give her up?' It seemed to Harry that this was a situation requiring some active measures. He couldn't realize that he had fallen hopelessly in love without some rights accruing to him with the possession of the object of his passion. Quiet resignation under relinquishment of anything he wanted was not in his line. And when it appeared to him that a surrender of Laura would be the withdrawal of the one barrier that kept her from ruin, it was unreasonable to expect that he could see how to give her up. Harry had the most buoyant confidence in his own projects. Always he saw everything connected with himself in a large way and in rosy lines. This predominance of the imagination over judgment gave that appearance of exaggeration to his conversation and to his communications with regard to himself, which sometimes conveyed the impression that he was not speaking the truth. His acquaintances had been known to say that they were invariably allowed a half for shrinkage in his statements, and held the other half under advisement for confirmation. Philip, in this case, could not tell from Harry's story exactly how much encouragement Laura had given him, nor what hopes he might justly have of winning her. He had never seen him desponding before. The brag appeared to be all taken out of him, and his airy manner only asserted itself now and then in a comical imitation of its old self. Philip wanted time to look about him before he decided what to do. He was not familiar with Washington, and it was difficult to adjust his feelings and perceptions to its peculiarities. Coming out of the sweet sanity of the Bolton household, this was by contrast the maddest vanity fair one could conceive. It seemed to him a feverish, unhealthy atmosphere, in which lunacy would be easily developed. He fancied that everybody attached to himself an exaggerated importance from the fact of being at the nation's capital, the center of political influence, the fountain of patronage, preferment, jobs, and opportunities. People were introduced to each other as from this or that state, not from cities and towns, and this gave a largeness to their representative feeling. All the women talk politics as naturally and glibly as they talk fashion or literature elsewhere. There was always some exciting topic at the Capitol, or some huge slander was rising up like a mismatic exultation from the Potomac, threatening to settle no one knew exactly where. Every other person was an aspirant for a place, or if he had one, for a better place, or more pay. Almost every other one had some claim or interest or remedy to urge. 
Even the women were all advocates for the advancement of some person, and they violently espoused or denounced this or that measure as it would affect some relative, acquaintance, or friend. Love, travel, even death, waited on the chances of the dies daily thrown in the two houses and the committee rooms there. If the measure went through, love could afford to ripen into marriage, and longing for foreign travel would have fruitation, and it must have been only eternal hope springing in the breast that kept alive numerous old claimants who for years and years had besieged the doors of Congress, and had looked as if they needed not so much an appropriation of money as six feet of ground. And those who stood so long waiting for success to bring them death were usually those who had a just claim. Representing states and talking of national and even international affairs, as familiarly as neighbors at home talk of poor crops and the extravagance of their ministers, was likely at first to impose upon Philip as to the importance of the people gathered here. There was a little newspaper editor from Phil's native town, the assistant on a Pendletonian weekly, who made his little annual joke about the first egg laid on our table, and who was the menial of every tradesman in the village, and under bonds to him for the frequent puffs except the undertaker, about whose employment he was recklessly facetious. In Washington, he was an important man, correspondent, and clerk of two house committees, a worker in politics, and a competent critic of every woman and every man in Washington. He would be a consul, no doubt, by and by, at some foreign port, of the language of which he was ignorant, though if ignorance of language were a qualification, he might have been a consul at home. His easy familiarity with great men was so beautiful to see, and when Philip learned what a tremendous underground influence this little ignoramus had, huh, he no longer wondered at the queer appointments and the queerer legislation. Philip was not long in discovering that people in Washington did not differ much from other people. They had the same meanness, generosities, and tastes. A Washington boarding house had the odor of a boarding house the world over. Colonel Sellers was as unchanged as anyone Philip saw whom he had known elsewhere. Washington appeared to be the native element of this man. His pretensions were equal to any he encountered there. He saw nothing in the society that equaled that of Hawkeye. He sat down to no table that could not be unfavorably contrasted with his own at home. The most airy scheme inflated in the hot air of the capital only reached in magnitude some of his lesser fancies, the by-play of his constructive imagination. "'The country is getting along very well,' he said to Philip. "'But our public men are too timid. What we want is more money. I've told Boutwell so. Talk about basing the currency on gold. <laughs> you might as well base it on pork. Gold is only one product. Base it on everything. You've got to do something for the West.' How am I to move my crops? We must have improvements. Now Grant's got the idea. We want a canal from James River to the Mississippi. Government ought to build it. It was difficult to get the colonel off from these large themes once he was started. 
but philip brought the conversation round to laura and her reputation in the city no he said i haven't noticed much we've been so busy about this university it will make laura rich with the rest of us and she has done nearly as much as if she were a man she has a great talent and will make a big match i see the foreign ministers and that sort after her yes there is talk always will be about a pretty woman so much in public as she is tough stories come to me but i put em away tain't likely one of si hawkins children would do that or she is the same as a child of his i told her though to go slow added the colonel as if that mysterious admonition from him would set everything right do you know anything about colonel selby asked philip <laughs> know all about him fine fellow but he's got a wife and i told him as a friend he'd better sheer off from laura i reckon he thought better of it he did but philip was not long in learning the truth quartered as laura was by a certain class and still admitted into society that nevertheless buzzed with disreputable stories about her she had lost character with the best people her intimacy with selby was open gossip and there were winks and thrustings of the tongue in any group of men when she passed by it was clear enough that harry's delusions must be broken up and that no such feeble obstacle as his passion could interpose would turn laura from her fate philip was determined to see her and put himself in possession of the truth as he suspected it in order to show harry his folly laura after her last conversation with harry had a new sense of her position she had noticed before the signs of a change in manners toward her a little less respect perhaps from men and in an avoidance by women she had attributed this latter partly to jealousy of her for no one is willing to acknowledge a fault in themselves when a more agreeable motive can be found for the estrangements of their acquaintances but now if society had turned on her she would defy it it was not in her nature to shrink she knew she had been wronged and she knew that she had no remedy what she heard of colonel selby's proposed departure alarmed her more than anything else and she calmly determined that if he was deceiving her the second time it should be the last let society finish the tragedy if it liked she was indifferent what came after at the first opportunity she charged selby with his intentions to abandon her he blushingly denied it he had no thoughts of going to europe he had only been amusing himself with seller's schemes he swore that as soon as she succeeded with her bill he would fly with her to any part of the world she did not quite believe him for she saw that he feared her and she began to suspect that his were the protestations of a coward to gain time but she showed him no doubts she only watched his movement day by day and always held herself ready to act promptly when philip came into the presence of this attractive woman he could not realize that she was the subject of all the scandal he had heard she received him with quite the old hawkeye openness and cordiality and fell to talking at once of their little acquaintances there 
and it seemed impossible that he could ever say to her what he had come determined to say. Such a man as Philip has only one standard by which to judge women. Laura recognized that fact, no doubt. The better part of her woman's nature saw it. Such a man might, years ago, not now, have changed her nature and made the issue of her life so different. Even after her cruel abandonment, she had a dim feeling of this, and she would like now to stand well with him. The spark of truth and honor that was left in her was elicited by his presence. It was this influence that governed her conduct in this interview. "'I have come,' said Philip, in his direct manner, "'from my friend Mr. Brierly. "'You are not ignorant of his feelings toward you.' "'Perhaps not,' said Laura. "'But perhaps you do not know, you who have so much admiration, "'how sincere and overmastering his love is for you. "'Philip would not have spoken so plainly "'if he had in mind anything except to draw from Laura "'something that would end Harry's passion.' "'And did sincere love so rare, Mr. Sterling?' asked Laura, moving her foot a little and speaking with a shade of sarcasm. "'Perhaps not in Washington,' replied Philip, tempted into a similar tone. "'Excuse my bluntness,' he continued. "'But with the knowledge of his love, would his devotion make any difference to you in your Washington life?' "'In respect to what?' asked Laura quickly. "'Well, to others, I won't equivocate.' to Colonel Selby. Laura's face flushed with anger or shame, and she looked steadily at Philip and began, By what right, sir? By the right of friendship, interrupted Philip stoutly. It may matter little to you. It's everything to him. He has a quixotic notion that you would turn back from what is before you for his sake. You can't be ignorant of what all the city is talking of. Philip said this determinedly, and with some bitterness. It was a full minute before Laura spoke. Both had risen, Philip as if to go, and Laura in suppressed excitement. When she spoke, her voice was very unsteady, and, and she looked down. Yes, I know. I perfectly understand what you mean. Mr. Briley is nothing, simply nothing. He's a moth, singed, that's all. A trifler with women, though he thought he was a wasp. I have no pity for him, not the least. You may tell him not to make a fool of himself and to keep away. I say this on your account, not his. You, sir, are not like him. Enough for me that you want it so, Mr. Sterling, she continued, looking up, and there were tears in her eyes that contradicted the hardness of her language. You might not pity him if you knew my history. Perhaps you would not wonder at some things you've heard. No, it's, it's useless to ask me why it must be so. I can't make a life over. Society won't let you if you would. And mine must be lived as it is. There, sir, I'm not offended, but it is useless for me to say anything more. Philip went away with his heart enlightened about Harry, but profoundly saddened by the glimpse of what this woman might have been. He told Harry all that was necessary of the conversation. She was bent on going her own way. He had not the ghost of a chance. He was a fool. She had said, for thinking he had. And Harry accepted it meekly, and made up his mind that Philip didn't know much about women. 
End of chapter 44 Recording by Kenneth Sargent Gagan, Auburn, California